1: the NCCU School of Law, and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On May
0: 17, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its his historic and groundbreaking opinion in Brown v. Board of Education, which declared that it was illegal to segregate school children based on their race. The Brown decision did not address the issue of the quality of education, although it noted that the then segregated African-American schools were providing a quality education for its students. Subsequently, the Brown decision served as the predicate to other decisions by that court that state-sponsored racial segregation was illegal in every phase of public life. In North Carolina, the right to an education is guaranteed by the state constitution. This issue was addressed by the North Carolina Supreme Court in the 1997 Leandro versus North Carolina lawsuit, which declared that the state was required to provide a sound basic education, which consisted of competent and well-trained teachers and principals who were provided with Equable access and resources. Since that initial Leandro decision, this right was restated by the Supreme Court in 2004, and has now resulted in a comprehensive evaluation of education, which was recently discussed in the 2020 West Education Report. Whether these separate court decisions and administration's actions have resulted in a desegregated and high quality education is the topic of our discussion this evening. Joining us for this discussion are attorney Mark Dorison, who is the managing attorney for the Southern Regional Office of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law. And he is also a county commissioner in Orange County. And Keith Sutton, who is a member of the Wake County Board of Education And a recent candidate for the North Carolina Superintendent of Education. So, for both of you, thank you for joining us for this discussion.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: All right. Now, each of you play uh, a distinct role in the uh, quest for educational equity in our state. So, my first question to both of you is a kind of a general one. From your perspective. what is the status of educational equity in North Carolina as it exists right now? So Mark, you wanna start us out and we'll come to the Board of uh, Education, uh, County Board of Education director after this.
3: Sure, thank you. And it's uh, great to be here um, back on the legal eagle and good to see everyone. I, I, North Carolina education, related specifically on the question of equity, is in a critical moment. The, as you pointed out, the the Leandro decisions in 1997 and 2004 clearly established that the state has a constitutional right, I mean, a constitutional obligation to provide every child with a sound best basic education and those decisions also held that the state is failing to meet that constitutional obligation. So the state has been found liable and we've spent um, in that case and in the other advocacy we do, really the last almost 20 years, trying to compel the state to implement a remedy to address its constitutional deficiencies. Um, and, and the, you know, that that's just that piece of it, what that remedy looks like, what the state has to do um, clearly, and, and, and uh, which the advocates have been arguing from the beginning, and which the West Ed report that you mentioned highlighted, was that the state needed to put m- more resources into public education, and not just more resources generally, but particularly targeted to providing equitable educational opportunities for low wealth students, um, which the Leandro decisions identified as being those most at risk for not getting the constitutional right. Now lay it over that, what we know has been happening really since um, before Leandro, but certainly over the last 20 years has been an increasing resegregation of public schools. And so what we have seen and, and, and the data shows and statistics show is that um, we have, our schools are now, and, and I, I know uh, Keith can speak to this, they are now as as if not more segregated than they were you know, in the early 70s. Um, and so what we have are um, sc- racially isolated, high poverty schools in districts all across the state um, that do not have the resources they need to adequately educate the children that are in those schools. Um, and at the same time, and, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, there's been a movement towards privatization of education and really creating you know, a, a way for folks um, who wanna get out of the public school system to do that. Um, and with, with the confidence that a market system can somehow replace the public good that education has always represented in this country.
0: Keith, you you, you work at this from uh, the county level where you have to make decisions on a uh, daily basis about how to operate uh, the uh, county school system. Uh, You are not in a low wealth uh, county. Uh, You clearly have low wealth individuals that uh, reside in your jurisdiction so how does this uh how does this Le, uh, Le, leandro mandate impact what it is that you're doing over in uh, in wake county
2: sure thanks for the question and thanks again for the opportunity to be here this afternoon with you all um you know mark touched on a, a, a lot of important parts and so i'll just kind of you know highlight some of where he you know left off and respond to to your question i think one when you look at the state of equity in public education across the state and, and what's happening in Wake, you know, there's a responsibility at the state level, uh, uh, as Mark talked about, you know, with Leandro, and, and obviously there's still much work to be done there in terms of funding. Um, so when you think about, you know, educational equity, we think, I think about it on several fronts, uh, and funding is, is, is one, uh, probably one of the most, if not the most important, and we still see a funding gap from the state uh, uh, in terms of its commitment to providing that sound basic education to every student. Um, So there's much work to be done, I think, on the funding front. Uh, Mark also touched on resegregation. Uh, And before I leave the funding part, um, while the state uh, is still uh, lagging behind in terms of the funding, what you're seeing is much of that funding being passed on to local uh, governments and counties uh, and so you're right in that Wake County is uh, uh, a more fluent uh, uh, county uh, one of the more fluent counties across the state. We've got uh, you know a, a, a very robust tax base and you know lots of homes that pay into your residential tax base and so we are able to to uh, we're blessed and fortunate to be able to do quite a bit here in Wake County which is different from other counties across the, the state and so my point there is that counties are trying to make up. Uh, uh, some of the funding gap uh, uh, that is left by the state. When you look at also uh, how uh, schools are starting to re-segregate and many counties and school boards have tried to put policies together uh, to to keep schools healthy, uh, integrated, uh, and balanced. Uh, But that is a particular struggle when you look at uh, the shifting demographics in our communities, resegregation, I'm sorry, gentrification that's happening uh, in our communities, which makes uh, uh, maintaining healthy, balanced, integrated schools fairly difficult. You also have uh, school districts who, uh, for various reasons, have chosen not to, and maybe not a choice, just haven't redrawn their district boundaries. Uh, I encourage many districts, when I talk about educational equity, I think every school system should at least review its attendance lines or boundary lines every 10 years uh, uh, to account for the shifting demographics in neighborhoods uh, and uh, communities. Um, That also leads to our policies, uh, which again, uh, um, many school boards are left to try to address educational equity and uh, uh, integration through its uh, board policies. And even when you think about on the federal level, uh, how the, the Department of Education thinks about equity and it talks about equitable access for every student having equitable access to effective teachers. And so are our best teachers in front of uh, our, our students who need them the most. Uh, and that's another area to talk about with regard to equity. So I just mentioned all of those as really some of the, the metrics or areas where we look to try to operationalize equity and and in a sense, and then all of those from funding to, to policy to you know, resegregation around schools, to our te- how uh, effective teachers being in front of the students who need them—all of those areas where we need to do uh, there's a lot more, a lot, a lot more work that needs to be done.
0: Okay, now both of you mentioned the uh, funding gap uh, that uh, exists at the uh, state level, and uh, I know Wake County is a uh, uh, high wealth uh, county, and Orange County is a high wealth uh, county. Uh, as, as well, but you have to uh, squeeze uh, out of uh, the residents there uh, those uh, funds necessary to keep a uh, high-quality educational product <clears throat> there. So can you talk about why there is a gap in funding at the state level and uh, how does that gap manifest itself at the uh, at the county level where the educational product is... Uh, is, is administered and distributed.
3: Sure, so I'll just pick up on something Keith said. You know, what, what we've seen you know, over at least the last decade is um, less resources coming from the state for education. And so what, what happens is exactly what he described, is that counties which also have a role in funding, using local funds, Um, are struggling to sort of fill the hole that the legislature has created. And and as you pointed out, in places like Orange County and Wake County, um, wealthier counties are much more able to do that by increasing local property taxes. Um, But what that does is it puts the squeeze in those more affluent counties on uh, the working class residents of those counties. And in Orange County, we've certainly experienced um, as the result of higher taxes that those working class families getting pushed out. It also means for lower wealth counties, like a place like Halifax County or or Hope County, um, places with a very small tax base that they're just unable. They can't raise the taxes enough to ever even begin to make up the gap that the state has created. And, And that's one of the reasons why that Leandro case is so important, because what it says is, it, that, that constitutional obligation is squarely on the state. Um, and so, um, so that, that is why that is so critical on the funding piece. And, and the other thing is, you know, what Keith said is really important that it is, um, it's not just the funding coming to those schools. It's also the, you know, it's the range of resources that are related to that. Um, and so, you know, it, in addition to the local property taxes, if you're in a more affluent community, you'll have parents who are willing to spend time and resources to support their local schools. Um, That in other places, um, not everyone has that um, time or availability or resources to to privately invest.
0: All right. Well, Keith, you wanted to respond uh, to that uh, as well?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll add to that just in terms of you know, the way the state's current funding formula is, it's based on called ADM, average daily membership. So that funding is, is driven or determined by the number of students in your in, in district. So obviously, with a district like Wake being the largest school system uh, in North Carolina, we're going to get a proportionate share. Uh, uh, counties that your tier one, sort of more distressed counties, your Halifax County, Robinson counties that have fewer students um, will get less. Uh, and I think until we, you know, look at Leandro and look at how we distribute funding across the state that is based in a, in a more equitable fashion that doesn't just look at population uh, numbers because obviously where your population is gonna be, those those districts also have, again, a robust tax base because of the, the, the population there as well. So. They've got, they'll get funding from the state and they'll get funding from their local counties. Uh, I think the counties that are smaller, uh, more distressed, economic distressed counties need some additional funding from the state uh, that is not based on population numbers uh, or demographics that is focused more on equity, that's focused more on economic conditions, uh, that's focused more on uh, uh, um, tax base uh, in, in a particular county um, uh, um, that the state focuses on or finds a way to distribute funding, uh, uh, to those counties, to those school districts, uh, that again, don't have the means that don't have the resources that a, that a Raleigh, uh, that a Charlotte, uh, has. And so we we need to find a, a way to distribute funding, uh, in a more equitable fashion, as opposed to just basing it solely on, uh, demographics and student population. So that's how it ends up trickling down. I think the part of your question, how it trickles down to the county, uh, where the county has to then sort of make up for some of that. And, and the county is a strapped because again, they, they distribute funding based on, you know, tax base, uh, uh um, you know, both residential tax base and, and, uh, corporate tax money or, or, um, uh, that's coming in from, uh, uh, their residential and commercial, Customers as well, so Mark can probably talk more about that. But you know, they're doing what they can, uh, just based on uh, uh, their purse strings, uh, to to help provide funding as well. So I think we got to look at how we change the funding formulas at the state level in terms of how we distribute money.
0: Well, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we are talking with uh, Mark Dorison, who is the uh, managing attorney for the Southern uh, Southern Regional Office of the Lawyers Committee for civil rights under the law. And he is also a county commissioner in uh, Orange County. And uh, we have also Keith Sutton, who is a member of the Wake County Board of uh, Education. Where we're talking about uh, educational uh, equity. We're gonna take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us uh, and we will be right back to uh, continue this uh, very important uh, discussion. So stay with us now.
4: I'm Nastasia Harris, a third year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. When Congress approved the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote in 1920, it reflected on the generations worth of work by suffragists of all races and backgrounds. Historically, Attention has focused on the efforts of white movement leaders, but those same leaders worked alongside many lesser known suffragists of color who made crucial contributions to the cause while also battling racism and discrimination. One prominent leader was Nanny Helen Burroughs. Nanny Burroughs was born to a formerly enslaved couple in Virginia. Educator, feminist, suffragist, and member of the National Association of Colored Women, Burroughs committed her life to the empowerment and education of African-American women. When she was turned down for a public school teacher position, she decided to open her own school. Burroughs relied mostly on donations in small amounts by Black women and children in the community. In 1909, Burroughs managed to raise enough money to open the National Training School for Women and Girls. She created and offered a vigorous curriculum of academic and experiential courses to include public speaking, physical education, music, and much more. The National Training School for Women and Girls educated black women from around the world. Burroughs died in May of 1961. In 1964, the school was renamed the Nanny Helen Burroughs School in her honor. The school was listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 1991. More information is at nps.gov and history.com. Virtual Justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening.
0: Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And I want to thank you uh, for staying with us as we continue this discussion of uh, educational equity in uh, North Carolina. We have two uh, experts uh, in this uh, area. Uh, a, uh, the number one litigator uh, in North Carolina dealing with uh, educational equity uh, matters, and that is uh, Mark Dorison, who is with the uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law and is actively involved in the uh, implementation of the, the Andrew uh, decision. And uh, Keith Sutton, was a member of the Wake County Board of Education and a longtime community activist uh, from uh, Wake County. And uh, he has uh, been uh, actively involved in a number of uh, community efforts over the years uh, to uh, bring some equity into our school uh, system. And he is a consultant uh, in the educational uh, equity uh, area. My question though, coming back, uh, to it has to go to this notion of uh, resegregation, and the intersection of this resegregation and privatization uh, here in North Carolina, uh, the North Carolina General Assembly regularly is pumping more and more funds into uh, vouchers and private uh, education at the expense of uh, of public. Uh, education in our state and then uh, satisfying the uh, Leandro uh, mandate. So I want to just raise with both of you, what is the uh, impact uh, of this uh, uh, privatization as it relates to our ability uh, to deal with uh, this uh, notion of resegregation?
2: I'll start. um, And I I just think the, the, the impact that the Supporting both the vouchers and charter schools is you're you know effectively siphoning off uh, dollars from the public school system, um, and setting up sort of a a, a a competitive system rather than one that bolsters uh, and supports public education. Um, especially when you're not only excuse me siphon those extra dollars to to those to the privatization of our schools, you're setting up sort of a, a An uneven playing field because they have different, uh, uh, they play by different rules, have different uh, laws and regulations uh, that are that are somewhat separate from uh, the public school system. You know, when the charter school system was set up initially, it was set up to be more of an incubator uh, uh, for uh, innovation, Uh, um, but it never really turned out that way, and 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 started to set up sort of a, a separate uh, and I won't even call it a separate, but equal, uh, since my most separate and unequal, uh, system that again, uh, takes dollars away from the public school, uh, public school system. Uh, and so those are important dollars that I think could, could not only help support public education, education of all our students, but also again, help to meet the Leandro, uh, uh, mandate. And so, uh, I think as we, and, and what we've seen, uh, Year, we're years out from now where they removed the cap on charter schools and we've seen a proliferation uh, of, of both dollars and schools uh, over the last few years and what we've tried to do here in Wake County uh, is really speak to the impact uh, uh, of that because when you hear and receive these applications of the state hears these applications from those that want to start the charter schools it's we feel like it's a bit one-sided and only talks about the positives that a charter school could bring to a particular community, but you don't often hear from the local community as local residents and those particularly that are running the local education system uh, in the area. And So what we've tried to do uh, is at least, at least share from our perspective what we feel like the impact of, of opening these new charter schools, what they will have, and, and that impact is often the number one impact that we feel uh, is a... Uh, again, a resegregation of the district uh, where the charters sort of pick, cherry pick their students. Uh, um, again, um, take some of the both public and private uh, uh, monies, uh, and set up schools that are uh, oftentimes um, segregated schools, which which then leave uh, sort of a haves and have-nots system for both the, the for the public school system as well.
3: Yeah, Keith is just exactly right on hit it on all fronts. I mean, what what we've got is, you know, what there's been a lot of research on charters in North Carolina, um, and what we know is that charter schools are twice as segregated as traditional public schools, um, and so um, what what is happening, what's happening is, you know, charters, um, the defense of charters is they're open to anybody, anybody can come, but the truth. Is, is it's not a random selection, right? Charters, they're not. They don't have to provide transportation. They don't have to provide free and reduced lunch. And so, even just on those two things, you're automatically changing the the pool of students and families who can even consider taking advantage of those. So, what what you have, and 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 you and particularly in districts like Wake County and Mecklenburg County that are generally more diverse what you see is charters opening up and creating, you know, um, an opportunity for white families to leave the district. So You get these, not only are the charter schools more segregated, but as a result, the student population that's left in the public schools is also more segregated because uh, of the draw away from diversity. Um, And so that's, that's a really critical point uh, that needs to be made. The, you know the the other the on the vouchers it's it's even a more complicated and even more troubling you know element because those that's taking the state money and again this this voucher program was really pitched at the idea that it was going to help low wealth families get out of out of failing schools which is a term i don't like to use that's how it was pitched though um and and the idea was these kids you know can get to these private schools and get a better education what, what's ignored is that there is no requirement for any kind of state oversight of these private schools. There's no measure of the quality or the substance of the education that's being given in those schools. And the, in fact, those schools are not subject to Leandro, right? They're not subject to the state constitution. So there's not even that, even that leverage can't be held over those, um, over those private schools. One other thing, and I, I'm, I'm trying to keep short so we can have more of a dialogue. On the charters, it's just worth pointing out um, you know, building on what Keith said, you know, when charters first came to North Carolina, the legislature put a cap on the number we could have. There could be 100. The idea that maybe there'd be one in every county, the kind of um, laboratory or incubator that Keith talked about. Um, when the Republicans took over the legislature in 2010, one of the first things that they did was lift the cap. Now we have 200 charters. They just approved the 200th charter. And what you see if you look at a map is they are highly concentrated in places like Wake County, Mecklenburg County, and Guilford County, um, places where, or in some of the um higher percentage um counties of color like Halifax or um Northampton or places where um they, they create opportunities for folks to get out. You know, in in back in the Brown days, um They created what they called these segregation academies, right, private schools um, that whites could flee to when integration finally came to the public schools. The one restriction on those segregation academies was they were private, people had to pay for them. And so for a lot of folks that couldn't, they had to stay in an integrated public school. Charter schools take away that financial disincentive for staying in public schools.
1: Um, Thank you both for you know, setting the stage um, and bringing these issues into such clarity. And as as I'm listening to you both, of course my level of frustration is rising as I'm sure the listeners uh, level of, of anxiety and frustration is rising as well. And, you know, the first Leandro decision was 1997. We had another one in 2004. And it appears as though the situation is getting worse, worse, not better. Um, It feels like we're moving backwards. And so my question is, what has the legislature's response been to the North Carolina Supreme Court's mandate that the state in fact uh, provide for sound basic education? And, and what are the courts doing to make sure that we begin moving forward as opposed to rolling back the hands of time?
3: Well, that, that's a great question. And, you know, I think in the wake of the, you know, after 2004 and the, and the Supreme Court ruling in the Leandro II case, there was progress made. You know, we had, we had um, there were new monies put into um, for low schools. There was monies identified for disadvantaged students. The, you know, the early childhood education programs were set up, right? More at four and NC pre-K. And and, and those were were successful measures. There was progress. And then um, when the recession came in 2008, um, that's where we saw the funding slip away. and, and, and then, you know, again, there was, um, you know, conservatives took over the legislature and then we saw more generalized funding cuts to education. Um, and the court at that point, you know, really took kind of a back seat. There was a, you know, um, Judge Manning was the judge presiding over the case for many years. And he would hold these annual hearings and look at test scores and lament that the students weren't doing better, but but never really push the state or order them to do to do anything, you know, sort of just do better is what the the order came. Um, And so the the case really um, stagnated for a long time. Um, In in 2017, Judge Manning retired, Judge Lee was assigned to the case. And you know, one of the things he did early on was decided he needed some some expert help. And and the court then hired the WestEd consulting group to really, we, you know, the plaintiffs and the plaintiff interveners who I represent, who we represent, had been pushing all along for a plan. What's the state's plan? And uh, they never came up with one. And Judge Manning never forced them to do that. Judge Lee brought WestEd in, and they designed a plan. And now we're at the point, hopefully, where that plan is going to be implemented. But in the meantime, you know. That's like two whole cycles of K-12 students that have been lost. And I'll
2: just add to that, you know, that, that West Ed report has been a highly anticipated one uh, um, and finally at least outlines a plan um, and, and to some degree uh, a budget or at least an amount, maybe not a budget, but certainly an amount that's needed to fund that plan. Um, I think it's now up to both the legislature, uh, to, to make a decision to fund that plan in some way, um, probably in some sort of multi-year funding effort. And, and if the courts will hold them accountable to some level, uh, if, if, if they don't, you know, we're seeing right now signs of a, I don't know if we would call it a budget surplus, uh, but certainly the state is, um, expecting more revenue than what it anticipated. This legislature has uh, uh, chosen to continue to sort of uh, build what they call a rainy day fund. Um, but I think at least in some of these low wealth counties and low wealth communities, it's been raining for quite a while. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this this would certainly, I think, call for uh, or be an example of, you know, ways in which we could use some of this, uh, war chest that has really kind of been, uh, amassed if you will, because that's, I think that's about what it amounts to, uh, when you look at, and, and we expect more. So, you know, I think there's certainly here an opportunity, uh, for the state and the legislature to, to at least put a dent in, you know, what is this sort of Leandro hole, uh, if you will, and I'm, I'm hopeful, I hope that they would do so, but, you know, given, um, the 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 leanings of, of this particular general assembly, you know, I'm not sure if that will happen. And so we may be relying on the courts to to take some sort of action. So I, I am hopeful that if that's if that's where we end up, that Judge Lee will will take some sort of stand and and, and push the legislature. Uh, to the extent that he can. And I, and I think that's sort of the challenge, too, is, you know, uh, our, the way our system is set up with the checks and balance, balances of the judicial branch and the, the legislative branch, it's, it's, you know, somewhat difficult, uh, uh, I guess, for, for those, uh, for the judicial branch to, to say, hey, legislature, you, you, you must do. Um, you know, we've seen that, you know, that happens in some instances, but I think that the judges have tried to be somewhat respectful as well of, of the lanes in which they sit and, and occupy, and, you know. So then, how how do we hold the legislature accountable? Uh, is difficult. So I get it.
1: Mm-hmm. Can um, either of you share some highlights of the plan and speak about uh, where the court is on evaluation of the plan? So wh- where are we in terms of the in litigation?
3: I can talk about the litigation, and I'm I'm, and I'm happy to talk about some detail of the plan. One one thing I will say, um, just as a as a predicate, there's a lot of talk about funding always, you know, and and but um, it it would be a mistake to just characterize the West Ed plan as saying we just need more. You have to put more money in schools. It 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 is it is clearly um, lays out. A, a broad spectrum of what needs to be, what makes a, a sound educational system, and it includes, you know, teacher training and recruitment, and that includes, um, you know, things like on the question of equity, like culturally responsive teaching, you know, and ensuring that teachers, um, like, like like the Keith said, that the, that the best teachers are in front of the students with the highest needs. Um, similarly, around around administration and, and principals. Um, it talks about the sort of the structural inequities of our finance system, but it also talks in a lot of detail about things like, you know, we, we have, you know, just unreasonable sort of limits on how much funding goes for children with disabilities or um, English language learners or um, uh, you know, uh, uh, students in Lowell schools. Um, and it gets into that level of detail. It also, it also talks about things that, um, the kind of a broader spectrum of what it takes to educate, um, particularly lower wealth students or in in or, or low wealth schools and school districts, things like the need for counselors, nurses, social workers, um, a, a lunch and breakfast program that's available to everyone. Um, and so it also talks about early childhood education. Um, and it also talks about, you know, really a kind of what happens after public school, a post-secondary plan? So it, it's very comprehensive in that regard. Um, those so, has sort of these seven pillars, but there's a lot of details in each one, which is critical. Um, and we worked really hard in the negotiations to make sure that the equity pieces were woven in um, to the extent that we could get that. Um, where it is right now, just real quickly, you know, the, um, this, this, the, the, WestEd plan was report was accepted as the outline over a year ago. And the state was given time to come up with its essentially its implementation plan. Um, and th- the state submitted its comprehensive um, remedial plan in March. Uh, it lays out how it's going to implement the kind of programs that WestEd identified and the funds needed to do that. Um, over an eight-year uh uh, spectrum, which is what WestEd described so that it would, you know, we could build this over time. Um, the state was supposed to put in $457 million last year in year one of the plan uh, that didn't happen. So we're, we're starting in year two, we're still trying to keep that eight year timeline. Um, and now there, are um, you know, the plan's been accepted. We had a hearing yesterday, a status conference with judge Lee. Uh, he was very um excited to see the plan and, um, had a lot of questions about how it's going to get implemented. And I think that, um, based on the hearing yesterday, uh, he's, he is going to enter an order, I think soon, um, making the state's, uh, the state's promise of what it said it will do in this plan, um, make it, making it their constitutional obligation
1: all right you're listening to the legal eagle review here on wncu 90.7 fm and we've been talking this hour about north carolina's constitutional obligation to provide a sound and basic education to its students and we have with us here in our zoom studio Attorney Mark Dorison, who is the managing attorney for the Southern Regional Office for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law, and also a county commissioner in Orange County. And Keith Sutton, a member of the Wake County Board of Education and a recent candidate for the North Carolina Superintendent of Education. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to The Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking with Attorney Mark Dorison, the Managing Attorney for the Southern Regional Office of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law, and a County Commissioner in Orange County, and Keith Sutton, a member of the Wake County Board of Education, and a recent candidate for the North Carolina Superintendent of Education. And we're talking this hour about the Leandro decision, which says that North Carolina has a constitutional obligation to provide a sound and basic education for all of its students. And we've been talking about how the state is failing in its constitutional responsibility. So, Mark, right before the break, you were talking about where we are in the litigation. There is this, uh, the WestEd plan. We've got the a legislatures implementation plan uh, were we're already behind uh, in the eight-year uh, planning period that that was initiated last year in terms of funding and I'm sure other things as well um, and and as you were talking about you know the this eight-year plan that is being put into place uh, you know and, and you mentioned this before that we have already had many generations of kindergartners who have gone through the educational system. So the uh, first Leandro decision was decided about 23 years ago, right? So what's the remedy? So we've we've talked a little bit about the, the responsibility and what the General Assembly needs to do, what the state needs to do in order to satisfy its constitutional obligation. But what about those North Carol- Carolinians who are now, many of whom are adults, who have their constitutional rights violated, what is the remedy for them? And when we think about the impact, we understand, of course, how important education is, how important early education is. Uh, and you know, without getting that firm foundation, uh, it, it com- can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So what is to be done for those children, who many of whom are now adults, um, who had their constitutional rights uh, basically ignored by the state.
3: Yeah, that's a. I mean, I clearly that, that you know it, it. It's a really interesting question. And you know, we when we got into the case back in 2006, I think, you know, we we represented the Charlotte Mecklenburg NAACP and probably a dozen students in CMS at the time. Um, And over the course of the litigation, all of those clients aged out. I mean, they're no longer even plaintiffs or parties in the suit Um, because there's not a remedy. I mean, that is, it's just you phrasing the question just really brings the poignancy of. The, the the magnitude of this of this harm that's that's been happening for you know two decades now and is continuing to to happen and, and you're exactly right that there is I mean you know we 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 generally as a society talk a lot about how important education is how it's kind of a linchpin um, for for civic engagement and participation and and equality opportunity um, but the you know we continue to treat it as if it doesn't have a qualitative component that just having a building that's open with somebody standing in front of the classes is, is all that we need to do and we know that's not the case.
0: Well, let me let me just kind of add to that uh, question and, and go to Keith on this uh, point. Uh, we, we we are emerging now from the uh, pandemic, and during this uh, past year also or more, uh, there has been education being provided in the private school setting. And we have at the public school setting, uh, children who have been left back, uh, ignored, and uh, permanently scarred by uh, by this year of absence. What can be done or can anything be done to make up to them for where they are in the process, having started out with a deficient educational uh, offering, and now having to uh, <clears throat> double track to make up uh, the uh, effects of that uh, as uh, as we emerge from uh, this uh, pandemic. You
2: know, I, I think um, you know, great question. I, I, I think. First, let me go back to the West Ed report. And I I think it's one of the best reports I've seen. I agree with Mark. It's one of the most comprehensive reports and talks about everything from, you know, again, teacher quality, how we recruit, retain the best teachers, the importance of early childhood education uh, and everything in between. Uh, The good thing about that report, I think, is also it confirms, quite frankly, really what we already knew uh, in terms of, Uh, poverty and and inequity in North Carolina in in the system. You know, I don't know how many schools are on the state's low performing list now. We've not heard much about that since the pandemic. Uh, uh, But I would almost guarantee you that every school that's on the state's low performing list is also situated in a poor minority community. So we know that there is a correlation between poverty uh, and and education uh, in North Carolina. And, and would argue you know, you know, some of that around you know, racism as well, but certainly an issue around poverty and lack of resources. What that West that report does, I think, uh, in a fantastic way, it sort of lays out uh, uh, the, the need for some intentionality and focus on the, the topic. And I think that's where we have to start. And so I, I start there in terms of, you know, also responding to your question, you know, Professor Joyner, Uh, about how we address this gap left by the pandemic that we've got to be very very intentional and focused uh, on those students, on those families, on the communities and kids that that need the the help the most. We've seen where some students, for example, have fared well uh, in this virtual environment. My own daughter, uh, both of my uh, daughters have actually seen their grades go up uh, in a virtual environment, but that's not the case for most of our students, many of our students, uh, and they have lagged and uh, because of the loss of learning opportunities uh, um, and being in a classroom, being in front of uh, a teacher. Uh, and what we're seeing, uh, quite frankly, uh, is a huge influx of resources, financial, quite frankly, both primarily coming from the federal level, uh, uh, but some from the state too. Uh, now, that's not, supplanting so or replacing the money that's also needed to invest in Leandro, that money I think is still needed as well. Uh, but we're seeing a huge influx uh, of resources coming in from the federal and the state. So I don't know that that dollars will be the issue, but it will be the planning. Uh, and again, high-intentional focus, focus we are on creating summer school opportunities uh, for students to recoup some of that, that loss. Uh, This is an opportunity now to really for us to focus on these issues around equity uh, or lack of that we've seen, the technology gap and the digital divide, um, uh, social, emotional uh, and and mental health uh, gaps that we've seen. So I think investments in more counselors in our schools, more social workers in our schools more computers and technology and devices uh, in our schools, but also the infrastructure in our communities, particularly in the rural communities, uh, where we had difficulty with uh, um, accessing the the internet and had to provide kids with mobile uh, Wi-Fi devices and and that sort of thing. So there are a number of inequities that again, have existed for over time that we've always known about, uh, but have only been exacerbated by uh the pandemic and now that resources are flowing into our communities to help with some of that we need to be very focused uh deliberate and intentional uh on putting those resources together with some sort of plan i think the west report can help with you know provide a roadmap uh, uh for some of that and the last thing i would say is really focusing on our students and that social emotional well-being. Um, you know, kids are very resilient. We, we, we know that. And then those kids where we where we don't see that, we need to build resiliency uh, in students. And I think if we do that, we will see our students uh, bounce back. Uh, will, will some of the impacts be long-term? Uh, absolutely, but I think they are reversible uh, as well if we are intentional and deliberate in our focus and making sure that our students get the support that they need.
3: Yeah, and just real quick after that, just, you know, the the, the, the thing about the pandemic, um, even though it affected all students, it didn't affect all students the same way. Like Keith said, we we, ha- we know we had this gap. Um, the pandemic just didn't freeze the status quo. What happened is the same kids who were the focus of Leandro, those at-risk kids, the, the their experience was worse. The gap widened. As a result of the pandemic, and and it's interesting because in one of the things in the state's proposed plan on Leandro is to use a lot of the federal funding that Keith talked about um, to to use that as part of the plan, and in the hearing yesterday we really pushed back on that because. Um, you know, while those funds are critical, they really are about the additional educational needs that school districts have as a result of the pandemic, the capital needs that Keith was just talking about. While what what Leandro was about were these persistent structural deficiencies in our in our education system, and so um, those funds are critical, but they can't they can't replace the kind of recurring funds that that districts need over time. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things I wanted to uh, to, to just kind of touch upon, both of you mentioned the the problem with the growth of charter schools and the emphasis on vouchers and how uh, both of these programs are siphoning money away from the public schools. You know, parents find themselves, parents who live and whose children attend um, the lower performing schools, find themselves in a catch 22, right? So, you know, you can intellectually understand the problem with charter schools and the problem with vouchers, but at the same time, you're looking at your children and you wanna make sure that they have the best educational opportunity. Uh, and, And as you're making a decision about what's best for your family, you can just, you know, you've got the tension between the two. And I, and I wonder if um, either of you want to share any thoughts that you have about, about that dynamic and the difficulty.
2: Well, you know, I, I would say quickly, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter of public schools. No question about that. I support public education. But I'll you know, be the first to say that public education is not the end all be all. You know, for all students, for some students, it, it, the public education system doesn't work. When you have schools like ours in Wake County, where we have high schools that have 23, 24, 2,500 students at a very large comprehensive high schools, those larger settings don't always work uh, for all kids, uh, especially sometimes, um, you know, African-American kids and African-American males. Uh, they may need smaller classrooms, smaller environments, more one-to-one, you know, to uh, um, smaller ratio of teachers, you know, to students. And so I do think that there is a place, uh, quite frankly, for public charter schools. Uh, and, and there's a role that they play uh, in our education landscape. But I think the the rules, uh, the, the policies, the, the playing field uh, needs to be leveled uh, for them all and for the same. Uh, that charter schools don't get to play by one set of rules and then the other public schools get to play by another. That's where the problem or the rub for me, and I think for most of us, you know, comes in. You'll hear many in our community, uh, I think of folks like Howard Fuller up in Milwaukee uh, that talk about, you know, uh, educating students by any means necessary. And so if it's public, if it's private, if it's charters, if it's, whatever, you know, what have you, whatever, you know, education system best serves your child is the system that you know that you need to support and and get behind and and i understand that that thinking um and and you know believe that as well it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh you know particular for for you know students of color so
3: yeah i agree with what keith is saying <clears throat> he said it very well i mean i i would just i take a kind of a, a zoomed out view and a macro view and a micro view so on the zoomed out view i mean what concerns me is, is we're undermining a public good, maybe the last public good that, or, or or at least the most significant one that our our society was built around. Never perfectly, always exclusively, but has worked towards um, this common shared good. It, it was really the idea that, that that was sort of the center of our, or the model for a democratic System, edu- you know, educating all students together, um, and that being a core value of our nation, and and what we see with these with these privatization is really, aside from the question of education, really the privatization of a public good, and, and that has, I think, has real devastating harms, potential harms for the society, at the micro level. To to Keith's point, um, you know. It, there's not a level playing field, right? Charters were originally designed as a way of transcending residential segregation, right? The idea was um, if we had schools where it didn't matter where you live, we could get past these attendance boundaries that, that created these, you know, white schools and white neighborhoods and black schools and black neighborhoods. That was the vision for it, but that's not how it's worked out. When North Carolina's charter school law was first adopted, it had a provision in the statute that said the charter schools should reflect the racial diversity of the schools that they draw students from. That was, the, that was the idea. It was never, there was never anybody was ever, no one was ever held accountable to do that. The state board and the charter school, they never asked any schools about that as they were approving them or reapproving them. And then when advocates started to say, hey, what about this language in the statute? They took it out of the statute. Um, And so there there is there I think there are ways to do this to accommodate the kind of educational needs that Keith described, but to do it in a way that is that is equitable. And, you know, and and there was the charter school that's just got approved in Wake County that Keith and his colleagues opposed specifically on the segregative question, they they. Try, they've proffered at least steps to try to address that. A weighted lottery, um, they're going to offer lunch and transportation. I mean, but but that shouldn't have to be negotiated with each one. Um, that should be built into the process. So it really isn't equitable. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other rules that that tip away from that.
1: Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we're going to have to have both of you back because there's so much more to talk about. And, and we want to make sure that we follow the ongoing litigation Um, and thank you both for all of your hard work and advocacy in this area uh, and, and doing your part to strengthen our public schools here in North Carolina. We'd like to thank our guest, Attorney Mark Dorison, the Managing Attorney for the Southern Regional Office of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law and County Commissioner in Orange County and Keith Sutton, a member of the Wake County Board of Education and recent candidate for the North Carolina superintendent of education and of course we'd like to thank you our listening audience for taking time out of your sunday evening and spending it with us we hope you've enjoyed the show if you have any questions or comments please send us an email you can reach us at legal eagle review at nccu.edu and if you ever miss this show on sunday you can find the show on our legal eagle review podcast Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.